Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the uh, one of the authors of Nation on the Take, How Big Money Corrupts Our Democracy. Uh, the book is written by Wendell Potter and Nick Penniman. Uh, I have the real pleasure to have uh, Wendell Potter on the line today to talk. Wendell Potter is a former health insurance executive. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. And today I have the uh, one of the authors of Nation on the Take, How Big Money Corrupts Our Democracy. Uh, the book is written by Wendell Potter and Nick Penniman. Uh, I have the real pleasure to have uh, Wendell Potter on the line today to talk. Wendell Potter is a former health insurance executive. Uh, he's the author of Deadly Spin, which came out before this current book, and is a regular contributor for the Huffington Post and healthinsurance.org. Wendell Potter, how are you doing today? I'm great. He, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you. It's, this is a subject matter that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and have recently published a, a book that takes on the subject matter. And right. so for that reason, I'm, I'm personally interested and, and was just so impressed by the, um, the, the, the breadth of, of coverage here. It's, it's just a really interesting uh, read. Now, there's a lot to talk about in the book, but let's start on something uh, rather small and, and seemingly mundane. Um, in the book, you talk about what is called call time, and you provide a model daily schedule for a member of Congress. Would you tell us just a little bit about what call time is and and maybe what it says about how Congress is doing its work? Yeah, we were able to get our hands on a a communication from the the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, a communication that was uh, developed to give to incoming freshmen uh, members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, with suggestions about how they should structure their days. Uh, and rather than having an emphasis on constituent service or uh, your committee assignments uh, or just doing the work that I think most voters think a member of Congress does, the majority of time on a given day that is recommended for a member of Congress is that he or she spend about 50% of that time uh, doing nothing more than dialing for dollars. And call time is just that. It is leaving... Uh, the Capitol, leaving either the, the Capitol itself or the the uh, House office building and going to another building uh, a block or two away, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, uh, both uh, parties have big offices nearby. And they've got cubicles set up for members to go in and, and just be like telemarketers, start calling uh, potential donors. And there's a, an assistant who will, uh, who will be helpful. Uh, to have index cards or something like that with uh, the name of the person on it. And, uh, uh, and, and that's what the member of Congress does. And uh, not just that, but there's also what's referred to as uh, uh, strategic development time or something like that. In which, and that, too, is, uh, is developing uh, uh, money for, uh, for reelection. So these, these members of Congress are constantly running for reelection. The very moment that they are elected, it begins all over again. 
Now, you also have this really interesting illustration of how influential money is over public policy. You ask the reader to consider a, a baby named Eve. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about how baby Eve's life is sh is shaped by lobbyists? Right. And we, we chose this to illustrate just uh, how inescapable uh, uh, our lives are from the influence of lobbying from cradle to grave. And we we, we take the example of a baby uh, who uh, is born in a hospital uh, and the uh, uh, everything about the, the, the delivery, uh, the, the rules and regulations pertaining to uh, uh, to healthcare are influenced in one way or another by by lobbyists and campaign contributions. Uh, when she uh, leaves the hospital with her parents, uh, she is uh, uh, more often than not uh, being taken home in, a, in an automobile that that uh, uh, is influenced by lobbying. Uh, whether it's the the mileage that is allowable or the the exhaust fumes that come out of the tailpipe, uh, and she goes home to uh, uh, to to where her parents. If, if they've bought a house, uh, lobbying uh, has affected uh, the the availability of mortgages, the mortgage rate. Uh, everything th that uh, uh, Eve touches or that affects her in her daily life uh, uh, is in one way or another influenced by big money and politics. Uh, we don't stop to think about it, it, it but it is ever-present, uh, and we just simply can't escape what we refer to as a system, the system that uh, has been created by big money. And as we've uh, certainly been hearing by at least two of the very big, uh, most, uh, most famous uh, presidential candidates, both Bernie Sanders and, uh, uh, and Donald Trump, talk about how the system is rigged. And they both are right. The system really is rigged against um, average folks. Now, uh, as I mentioned at the, at the start of uh, the podcast, you have a background in health insurance. Um, I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about how these issues play out in that sector. Uh, is, is money as significant a player in the making of health policy as it is in other policy areas? It absolutely is, and in fact, uh, probably more so, because uh, two of the biggest uh, uh, industries, or the industries that spend the most in lobbying, are the pharmaceutical industry and, and the health insurance industry. Uh, the money that they spend is just enormous. They spend billions of dollars over over the course of a few years to influence public policy. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why I wrote this book in particular. Uh, my first book was called Deadly Spin, and it was a, uh, a look at how health insurers are able to influence uh, uh, public opinion and consequently public policy. Uh, and that was kind of the work that I was involved in when I was in the industry. Uh, as head of corporate communications for one of the largest insurance companies. But what I observed uh, after I left the industry and, and began spending a lot of time representing the interest of consumers in Washington during the healthcare reform debate, uh, it was very clear that my former colleagues were, were so influential that uh, the, the legislation that ultimately was passed that we know as Obamacare was very, very heavily influenced by the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry and medical device manufacturers, by the hospitals, by the, the American Medical Association, uh, with, to the point that no legislation would have been passed that didn't first meet the, the criteria or the expectations of the lobbyist for all of those industries. Um, it does some good. I, I, I always say that the Affordable Care Act, I think, was worth, was worth passing and does some good, but it has been exceedingly 
lucrative or uh, beneficial to the special interests. They've, they've profited under the law. Uh, in fact, uh, the two companies that I worked for uh, over the course of 20 years, uh, Cigna and, and Humana, the share price for those two companies has increased more than a thousand percent since the beginning of the Obama administration. So with with all of the need for members of Congress to raise money and all of the money being spent by lobbyists, we, we must ask this, this sort of basic question. Has the country become an oligarchy? Is this, is this the argument that you guys are making in the book? Absolutely, it is, uh, and regrettably so. We we have reached the point. It's uh, we we often talk about uh, having reached a, a second gilded age in which uh, moneyed interests are so influential that um, uh, that the system really is, as I said earlier, rigged against regular people. Uh, and uh, we've we've reached the point that uh, a few billionaires uh, or their and and or their families are able to. Uh, uh, contribute enormous sums of money to influence elections. Uh, so we're not talking about just lobbying. We're talking about uh, uh, elections as well, too. Money is used in, in so many different ways uh, and so much more of it than, than we have seen uh, in, in, the, in the past. I was a reporter in Washington uh, in, in the 70s. Uh, and uh, when I go back to Washington now, uh, it's, you know, the buildings are the same, but uh, so much has changed. Uh, inside those buildings, the uh, uh, the number of lobbyists, the amount of money that they uh, that, that they have at their disposal to uh, uh, influence uh, legislation, and it's not just legislation either; it influences the regulatory uh, part of government also, and also not just in Washington. It's uh, pervasive at the state and municipal levels as well too. Now, one might assume that your um uh, your take on this is is a is a deeply hopeless one, um, but but in the book it, it seems clear that that the two of you are are somewhat hopeful about the potential to address some of these issues. So, is this a problem that is simply too large and insurmountable to be addressed, or or do you have some uh, reasons to believe there are things that can be done to to change the status quo? We are hopeful, and and we we do believe that. Uh, uh, we as a country can uh, return to a system of self-government, which we think we've we've lost in many ways, uh, because we're we're not talking about uh, something that is uh, uh, so difficult to turn around uh, as as uh, climate change, for example. Uh, and we've also tackled huge problems or issues in the past uh, uh, throughout the course of our history, whether we're talking about slavery or or suffrage uh, or, or marriage equality. Uh, we at different times in our history have taken on and and uh, uh, and resolved in many ways some much more substantial problems uh, with what we're talking about in the book. Uh, this much of what we're talking about can be done simply by uh, legislation. Uh, and we just need to have the political will of members of Congress and, and other policymakers uh uh, to, to do what needs to be done in terms of restoring a democracy. And we need uh, uh, the will of the people. Uh, the, the members of Congress and other elected officials need to understand that this is something that, that Americans care about. Uh, and we, we do believe that they do. And we're seeing uh, the, the, the last chapter of our book is called The Makings of an All-American All Movement. And that is beginning. And we, we think that... Uh, uh, as more and more people become aware of just the consequences of what is going on, 
that that there will be a groundswell of support for reform, and that will eventually reach Congress. Now, let's talk specifics here. What are the specific kind of reforms you see as as most uh, possible, and and uh, whose passage might change this? Uh, what are, what are the what are the policy levers that you think would be most important to change? Is it all mainly focused on Citizens United, or are there other things that you think could be done? Other things. Uh, Citizens United, of course, is very important, and and that can be done. Uh, that can be reversed or or changed. Uh, uh, in the future with a change in the composition of the Supreme Court as uh, future courts um, uh, uh, take up legislation that uh, uh, could be uh, ruled upon that would undo some of the, the problems of Citizens United. Uh, and, of course, there's a possibility of a constitutional amendment uh, uh, to address that as well, too, which would take far more time and probably less likely. But but other there are other fixes uh, for that we believe would would uh, resolve about 75 percent of the problem uh, other than uh, the Supreme Court needing to act. Uh, transparency is an area that we feel is very important. But that we mean uh, we think that uh, Americans should know who is making donations in, in any way uh, uh, in real time. Uh, as it is now, in many cases, we don't know who is contributing to a campaign or a political action committee until after the election has been held. Uh, there's no reason why we can't have instantaneous disclosure of who is who is uh, contributing. Uh, we think that uh, uh, we should do something about the revolving door that is notorious, particularly in Washington. And now about 50 percent of members of Congress, when they leave office, go to K Street in Washington, uh, uh, the street known as the, the place where lobbyists off most of the offices of lobbyists are. Uh, and they go there and they make substantially more money than they did when they were members of Congress. Uh, we think that there should be a much longer period of time before a member of Congress and a staff member can become a lobbyist. Uh, and that would that would slow, if not end, the, the, the revolving door. Uh, we think that we need to have uh, lobbying uh, changes uh, with re- re- pertaining to, to how lobbyists do their work and the ability of lobbyists to make campaign contributions. And we point to South Carolina as an example. A few years ago in South Carolina, obviously a very uh, conservative state, uh, they passed um, uh, legislation that makes it illegal for a lobbyist to make a campaign donation to members of the legislature. Uh, we think that works and, and it's been upheld by the courts. Uh, uh, both parties in, in South Carolina support that. Uh, and uh, we think that should be uh, the, the, the law of the land uh, throughout the country at the state and federal level. So there are a lot of things that can be done and in many cases already are uh, already is being done. Uh, uh, in one place or another. Another is uh, 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 matching campaign contributions, as in New York City. Uh, if you are a resident of New York City, you make a, a donation to a candidate at the municipal level, uh, there's a public fund that uh, can match your contribution uh, up to six times of what you've, been, what you've contributed. So that, that enables uh, uh, someone who is not wealthy uh, to make a, a much more considerable influence on uh, a campaign. Uh, and uh, reduces the influence of the wealthy. Now, would you talk just a little bit more about the the movement uh, behind some of these uh, different suggestions? Um, I think uh, people would be surprised at how varied the groups are and how um, bipartisan or nonpartisan the uh, the uh, groups that are pushing for some of these reforms are. Would would you talk about that 
dimension of the book. I believe it's the final chapter. Yeah, we, we absolutely uh, are saying that this is very much a bipartisan effort, and there's just as much concern about this on the, on the right as there is on the left. And we're seeing uh, groups of, uh, of Tea Party members uh, or the you know, people who uh, would support members of the so-called Freedom Caucus in Washington uh, supportive of this, as well as uh, on, on the right. And in the middle, too, is an organization called Represent Us that uh, uh, works around the country uh, with uh, uh, people on on all ends of the ideological spectrum, as well as people in the middle, as they did in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, we, when Represent Us was involved down there working with members of the Tea Party and progressive organizations uh, to address uh, corruption in local government in, uh, in Tallahassee. And they were able to push forward some very meaningful reforms there. Uh, the, uh, uh, some of the, the, the most vocal proponents, in fact, of, uh, of reform are conservatives. One uh, individual is a, a gentleman by the name of John Pudner, who, who lives in Alabama, but who was very influential as a consultant uh, in unseating Eric Cantor uh, when he was running for re-election in Virginia. Uh, and he, he was able to get in, uh, to defeat him uh, at, the, uh, at the primary level. And part of the reason that, that campaign was so successful against Cantor was they were able to portray Cantor as someone who is so closely tied, uh, clo- so closely tied to, uh, uh, to special interest. Yeah, the the book is so interesting. Uh, again, the name is uh, the name of the book is uh, "Nation on the Take: How Big Money Corrupts Our Democracy and What We Can Do About It." The authors are Wendell Potter and Nick Henneman. Wendell Potter, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Heath. Thank you.